We're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe you robbed in St. Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 101, can you believe it, of Do You Expect Us To Talk? I've got Mr. Blonde over here and Mr. Beige over there. It's Mr. Mr. Bond. Dave Bond. Can you believe we got here? Yeah, they've been listening to our self-congratulatory fucking victory tour for the last month. (laughs) I'm sure they're well aware this. we've just passed episode 100. That's amazing. Hello, welcome to episode 101 of Do You Expect Us To Talk? Tonight we'll be discussing the the f- debut film of Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, starring Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth. Joining us today is hosts Rebecca Andrews and David Bond and Chris. Yeah, sorry, is that your is that the impression <laughs> that you're going for? That's that's your Stephen Wright, is it? Yeah, that's a, that's my Stephen Wright. And uh, hello, listeners, Mr. Beige. Stephen here. Wright had nasal issues and was from Manchester. Yes. <laughs> Wait, he's not. No, he's uh, from uh, he's from Salford. Oh, okay, makes all the difference. Yeah. But yeah, I, w- I was going to try and do an impression, but I thought it was shit. And then Chris came out and did one. And I thought, like, oh, that's amazing. Do that. I, I don't. I, I was listening to the. I, I was listening I, to that I, I, I won't session. Quite... At no point did I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I thought it was quite funny. It, it 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 was my impression, and even I was like thinking maybe. Amazing is a bit of a stretch. You started and you did a few seconds and I was thinking, fuck me, that's not working at all. And Becca no, went, that's not... amazing. And I'm like, what, what am I listening to? If you did it with an American accent, then it would be amazing. But because you're doing it with your normal accent, it does sound a bit like as if he is by Manchester. Well, he's really does but... bored. That's his only accent, is bored. That's it. I brought Bart and move around my dog and now he's gone. And that's about it's it. And I can't do it. I can't do it. No, you can't. I'm a do it. Do what I say. I can do the talkie toaster impression, but that has no <laughs> relation <laughs> whatsoever. Well, would you like a piece of toast? That I one. Fucking want a piece of fucking toast. Would you like some toast? Oh, sorry. It's like a bean and a crumpet. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. This is the anyway. worst intro ever. No, you're, you're not match fit, Becca. You haven't introed a show for a while, have you? No, I'm not. I'm left out a little bit. Anyway, also, also, Happy New Year. I'm just checking when this goes out. Yes, it will be the first one of the new year. Yes, Happy New Year. 
This is the first the podcast time... we have recorded in the first week of January 2018. Well, yeah, it's just we did one. Uh, I remember doing one for, for Your Eyes Only a few years ago. And and you said to us, should I wish everyone Happy New Year? But we still thought Chris was going to like edit that. So the thought occurred it would be put out in March. So we said no. Uh, but this will be out on about the 5th or 6th. So, yeah. Happy New yes, Year. We are in time. Happy New Year. I say it's better than that shitstorm that was 2017. Bloody hell. Anyway. So, yes, listeners, you are joining us on a new embarkation. Um as we go through the films of Quentin Tarantino. So we are starting with Reservoir Dogs, starring Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, who sadly isn't with us anymore, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Edward Bunker, and Tarantino himself. Not Written and directed by Tarantino anymore, and released in 1992. Not the only two that aren't with us anymore. Lawrence Tierney and uh, Eddie Bunker are dead now as oh, well. Oh yeah, Safe Foster, we didn't they as well. Yeah, he mm. Although they were older gentlemen at the time of filming here, Chris Penn died at the age of 40. To be fair, to be fair, but no, this is yeah, this is very interesting. Um, I think I've, I was trying to go through like cause I came across this film via AS Film Studies back in the day, and I was trying to find all my old notes, and I'm sure, I'm pretty sure I've got oh, like shit. film notes on the rest of it somewhere. But I'm I've got nothing. So just as I'm well, just, I'm just waiting forward to some really basic. I'm I'm looking forward to your observation about diegetic music in a bit. No, that's all I know, but that's about <laughs> it. I'm saying that that's my knowledge of this film in a nutshell. I think after after Kill Bill, I got a bit bored of Tarantino, and I kind of thought, well, you know, I'll just you'll have to steal your sign into the bin of history. So. Well beyond Kill Bill, although we are only going as far as this directorial efforts at the moment. So nine films in this series uh, that will be that will be Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume One, Kill Bill Volume Two, Death Proof, uh, Inglorious Bastards, Django Shadow, Unchained, Django Unchained, and the Hateful Eight. Yeah, we're not doing um, True Romance because Dave hates that film. <laughs> also from Dust Till Dawn, thanks for that. I would have happily done that. The trouble is, you can't you can't rule out True Romance on the basis of well, he didn't direct it, and then get from Dust Till Dawn in, which has pissed me off now because I've sacrificed one I like because of one I hate. <laughs> it's a fair trade, though, isn't it? I guess. I'm not a big it's fan a fair of trade, Dawn, to be honest. So I'm like, I- I am only interested in what he directed, if I'm honest. I mean, like or hate True Romance, it doesn't feel like a Tarantino film. It feels like a copy of a Tarantino film, largely because it is another director coming along and doing it and and thinking he was making the Red Shoe Diaries or something, but that was Tony Scott all over. (laughs) Um, I'm not a fan of that film. I know a lot of people love it, but I've always kind of found it. I was about to apologise if anyone listening holds that opinion, but actually bollocks to you. I honestly think if you think True Romance is the best film he's ever done, you're being edgy for the sake of it, because it fucking well isn't. Uh, Crimson Tide's probably the best film he's done. Crimson Tide's pretty good, to be fair. Uh, that's, the best, that's the best Star Trek film of the last 25 years. <laughs> but we yeah. have to go Scott retrospective as well, I think. Well, um, what, 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 of, the, of, the, of the brothers? Well, I'm not. I'm not doing. I'm not doing Tony Scott. <laughs> I, I will burst within about three films because I can't stand the guy's work at all. Oh, really? I like two or three, and Crimson Tide is probably the best of them. Or you could pick Even, some films that we really do hate with a passion. Well, I mean, the thing with Crimson Tide is it, it's really sloppy because I watched it right after I watched it for Pick a Flick, right? And the and there were two films that night, and the other one was Eyes Wide Shut. So I was following a Kubrick film with a Tony Scott film. Now, Kubrick, every scene was very deliberate. When you go to watch a Tony Scott film afterwards, you realise how sloppy he is. 
I didn't rate him as a filmmaker at all. I, I know he had a I know he had a certain pop culture popularity, but I didn't like him. He's, but Crimson Tide is one of his better efforts. He's very much like part of that um, music video MTV kind of style directors. Yes. Uh, like they're not a thing. I don't like Michael Bay either. Like 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 Tony Scott, he has a very good visual eye. Uh, yeah. I mean, like talking I, about Tony Scott. Yeah, I think I think. His probably penultimate film, uh, you know, it was, it was opening film really, the one that broke him out, was uh, Top Gun. And that's probably his... Oh, hang on, The Hunger was years before that. Yeah, no, uh, I, mean, I mean, the film that broke Are you him... talking about the film that popularised it? Yeah, the ba- yeah basically okay. where we were kind of like his intro to the world. Which is basically, a, I've got no problem with people of any sexuality, but Top Gun is the most homoerotic wet dream in the world. <laughs> and what, what made me laugh is, right, we used to make films based on, like, uh, books or short stories, novellas, that sort of thing. Um, Top Gun was based on the optioning of a photograph. I hate that film. Great blockbuster, though. Does its job. But, yeah, yeah, it's very... What job's job's that? I suppose I rented it. I suppose they got some money out of me. That did its job. Didn't like it. Yeah. Didn't like it. It's all all this American fucking best of the best of the best of the best of the best. (laughs) Fuck off. It's very 80s. Very 80s. And frankly, I think everyone would have calmed down a bit if Maverick and Iceman had just fucked early in the film and got it over with. Yeah. All this bollocks about hanging around with Kelly McGillis, you're just, you're just fooling yourself. <laughs> anyway, should we talk about <laughs> Tarantino? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm giddy. This is the most excited I've been about a retrospective since we did Rocky. Um I can pay all the lip services to the Star Wars of this world, and I do love them. Um, but so far, if you were to rank my excitement for the series we've done, it would sort of be Bond, Rocky, in this. I, I've really been looking forward to getting to this, and I expect, on a personal basis, to be much more positive. I expect to be the most positive of the three of us, on average, through this series. And I think of the nine films we're going to cover. I think six of them are absolutely outstanding. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, so am I. I mean, the, the thing is, I always look forward to whenever Tarantino brings out anything. Um, even though I do have my criticisms, as I always do, as you, as everyone knows. Um, but again, it's largely down to I want him to be better than, than he is, because I know he can be so much better. We'll get to Jackie Brown. Uh, that's my favourite. Um, and there's the theme scenes in Glorious Bastards where I just think the guy is a master, and you just think that the films could have been so much better if he just edited himself or just we haven't himself. we haven't we haven't encountered anyone with this peak level yet. Yeah, at all, and you know I think on average, if you had to give me someone's filmography, we've covered a lot of Spielberg. I'd take Spielberg over over Tarantino, of course I would. The guy is possibly the greatest American filmmaker. But there are there are moments there, there's, there's a moment there are moments of genius this guy meets. I think I don't know anyone else does. I think the thing with Tarantino is he's he's a guy who never went to film school, never never did any of that. He literally just watched movies and wrote and wrote a screenplays. 
literally he is he's isn't he? he is pretty much like well what, <clears throat> what that allowed him to do was avoid that awkward fucking like film studies phase mm. of, of of a filmmaker's career i'm not going to knock film school by the way because i think there's there must be an awful lot they learn that we never do for example but even if you go and look at like the early i mean the, the director is is most commonly um compared to is probably martin scorsese which i think is kind of lazy because they sort of work vaguely in the crime genre. I'm not sure I think they're that similar. I think it's like I think it's like comparing Nolan to Kubrick. They're not that similar, but there's a superficial stylistic thing and that's about it. I I always think Tarantino's his own thing. I mean like I think I think it, I think comparing to Scorsese. I mean even Scorsese yeah. doesn't do oh I only do gangster films, you know, you actually look at his body of work. He does all kinds of shit. Well, he's, done, then, he's done stuff like The Age of Innocence and stuff like that, which is, you know... Hugo, Wolf of Wall Street, all these oh, things. Hugo, Hugo was a master filmmaker, though, in terms of shot making and stuff like that. Yeah. But when you look at Quentin Tarantino, I if I look at this, this was his first film. Now, I know he shot bits and pieces of something else that never came out, wrote other things, but he sprung kind of fully formed. And there are things in this film that I think, yeah, that's a younger filmmaker or that's a younger man's opinion on on certain things. But he springs effectively fully formed. Now, if you go and look at, say, Martin Scorsese, I think if you go back to his early films with Harvey Keitel, actually, something like Who's That Knocking at My Door? It it looks like a, it looks like a student film. Mm. It does. Tarantino never looked like a student filmmaker probably because he was never a film student he sprung fairly fully formed and yes quentin tarantino's first film is reservoir dogs and he was about 29 when it was released about 28 while they were shooting it so it's going to be different from the man he is today at the time of recording this quentin tarantino is a couple of months away from 55 so it's going to be a very different filmmaker but it's still a very complete filmmaker yeah. Would he be able to make the same film today? No. I don't think quite... I don't think... I think the, the problem I'm going to... I don't know if I think it's a problem or not, but Quentin Tarantino is outgrowing this art form. That doesn't mean I, I think he's getting better than this art form, but he's outgrowing it. Quentin Tarantino now should be on Netflix with, like, eight-hour... eight-part eight series and stuff yeah. like that. And writing books and and collaborating on graphic novels and things like that, he's moved increasingly, and it starts around Kill Bill Volume One, I'd say, that he goes into this sort of very chapter-based structure after three or four installments, if you like. Would you see a little his, bit of it here? His films get yeah, a little bit. It was always there a little bit, but he, he literally points it out. Now. He, yeah. He's literally got chapter. Eight is literally chapter, chapter one, two. chapter two, chapter. Yeah, it is. Not, maybe not in that order. You've had that ever since Kill Bill. Yeah. The problem is, his films are getting longer. I'm going to point to a key point where I think that tipped over into a bad thing, because it's not about the length of a film; it's to do with what you're doing with your running time. Something very major happens to Quentin Tarantino. A little bit, well, under a decade ago, that actually changed the way his films are coming out and we'll come to that when we get to it but he's struggling to contain everything in one cohesive story that really suits filmmaking the reason he's still there is because he is a in love with film and be that talented i mean you get you get to something like the hateful eight and that got very very mixed reviews 
But I was just mesmerized by it. There's just something about this man getting people to say his dialogue and pointing cameras at them that just works. Um, he started off his career with this, this sort of remixing of soundtracks of, of music from a certain era, very typically 60s and 70s in his first two or three films. Um, but even later in his career, I mean, he, he, he drew that soundtrack of Ennio Morricone and things like that. So um, I'm endlessly fascinated by the man. And, and there are very few things in this world where I hit a mood and it, and it's all about one filmmaker and Tarantino can do that to me. I can get into like a Tarantino headspace and just watch and, and immerse myself in his stuff. He's very much a genre of himself. I think, I mean, that's what I think that's, I think that's his thing. He, he can kind of make, there's only one person making Tarantino films. And that's Tarantino. Everyone else, I mean, it's it... Tony Scott. Well, there, but yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, anyone else could only just like, well, you're only just trying to like pretend to be Tarantino. You know, it's, it's only yeah. one one guy. I've hated, doing. I've hated all the knockoffs, and I include people directing his stuff. Natural Born Killers was like a, a, a two or three hour, whatever it was, a bum note. You know, I, I hear dialogue very like music in in life. I just. There's a flow to the way people talk when they're awkward or nervous or unhappy or lying or anything. Um, and it is like, it's analogous to bum notes in music. And I'm not saying Tarantino's dialogue's that good, but only he can do his stuff. So when I watched Tony Scott do True Romance, it was like a piss take of a Tarantino film. I was the same with Natural Born Killers. The closest was um, the closest to getting it right was Robert Rodriguez with From Dust Till Dawn. It's not about whether you like the end result, by the way. It's just about how it came out and how close it is to what Tarantino would but, have done himself. But, but bear uh, in mind, Tar Tar Tarantino was on set. Yeah, he was actually in the cast as well, so he's there. Exactly, and he, and he actually owned, he was going to direct it, and then it was a last minute. Actually, I'd like to concentrate on my performance because he was Richie in it, Richie mm. Gecko. Um, so. I don't like other people doing his stuff. And we've also had, in a couple of different waves, like people trying to hitch themselves to the bandwagon. So back in the day, there were DVDs and later Blu-rays that were Quentin Tarantino Presents. And it was just putting his name on something that had nothing to do with it. The last wave of it I was aware of was Grindhouse. Grindhouse films made like a bit of a thing around the time he did Grindhouse. But before that, I mean, it wasn't so bad when it was... Um, a lot of the samurai stuff i mean like lady snowblood got like a release on the back of kill bill well i'm all right with it because lazy lady snowblood actually is really good um i've got to be careful with that because we mentioned hard candy on the show and like people went and bought it and stuff oh, but right. like <laughs> but um lady snowblood's really good but the fact is there are there were people popular you know, hitching themselves to this wagon and there were lots of it over the years that follow. I mean, even as late as five, four or five years later, things to do in Denver when you're dead. It's just a desperate attempt to be a Tarantino film. See, they're all. In, I've always liked in. that film, though. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I saw that in a double bill with From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. Um, back in the day. I, I, no, I don't dislike that that film. That's probably a bad example because I didn't dislike it at all. I, I but think, I think, there, there I was think... A, bit, a bit like after... Um, a bit like after Lockstock, you got Gangster Number One and, yeah, yeah. and lots of knockoffs of that. Tarantino has, has um, 
has always drawn a lot of imitators and actually it's always imitated by people who don't get what works about it in the first place you know um he may be like it's, it's like i mean just the analogy would be star trek yeah we, we covered all the star trek films and we watched them try repeatedly to make the wrath of khan again and the thing the thing that they thought they had to copy was the villain with a personal and time-bound relationship to kirk or whoever the lead was in that film mm. so obviously in first contact it was the borg queen and that was a link back to when he was assimilated and all the rest of it in nemesis it was like um shins on uh so on and they missed the point that what worked about the wrath of khan was actually this treatise on aging the wrath of khan is one of the most mature quote-unquote blockbusters i've ever seen it's an incredibly thought-provoking piece of work for what is another one in a franchise. And I think the same is true with Tarantino. People think it's about putting on some black shoots, suits and firing some guns. I think I think what makes it... I think, uh, to pick up on your point, why studios tend to sort of look to Rafa Khan is because of how they can sell it in terms of, like, oh, we've got a clear baddie and all those things that they know they can, they can sell it with. Whereas if it did the mature route that wouldn't necessarily sell the film but i, 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 but I, 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 but I do agree with your that. point what makes it great though but bear in mind if you were worried about box office you wouldn't be covering the wrath of khan i mean it, it that didn't do remotely as well as say the motion picture did yeah um it's purely about this this idea of they bring in writers they even bring in writers who love the films this is why i've got very little respect for the john logans of this world because everyone venerates him as this great writer well not only has he fucked up a fair amount of bond but he'll he'll come in and go uh, with this vision for star trek that was based on the fact he loved the wrath of khan and he produced something that aped all the wrong bits and it and as i say quentin tarantino when i look at mismarketed misunderstood elements of cinema from the last 30 years reservoir dogs would be so high up the list along with possibly skyfall in 3d in that virtually anyone who ever opens their mouth to talk about them doesn't seem to get the appeal at all or doesn't seem to understand what they're about i mean we talked about skyfall everyone says about how it's about bond being old has nothing to do with his age at all that film and we've explained that on a podcast somewhere else. 3D, constantly sold on the basis of the wow factor. There's nothing wow about 3D. Otherwise, we'd be walking around with fucking erections all the time. We see in 3D all the time. It's not that exciting. It's about immersion. And when I look at Tarantino, and it's more commonly people who haven't seen the films or they've only seen part of the films, Tarantino was this enfant terrible that was all like, violence and fucking even now he's been associated with star trek and everyone's like it's going to be absurdly violent and it's like is that really what you think is the only string to this man's bow i look at reservoir dogs and it is it's an exploration of trust that's what that's what reservoir dogs is and yet it was banned as a video nasty for about three years i had to see it in the cinema because i couldn't get it on video um, it's fascinating to watch this man's career unfold as this violent, obsessed guy when his films are normally solidly R-rated. I, I wouldn't argue with that, but I wouldn't even argue it's an important part of his armory. No, I think it's part of... 
I think it's just part of the flavour. It's just the guy just like happens to like films with violence in. I mean, as someone who generally like likes violent films, I can totally see and understand that. It's just it's part of a reflection of the movies that he generally tends to watch and like. You know, they all tend to have violence in it. Um, and I think it's just part of his identity. I don't see a problem with it whatsoever. And, and you know, it's. I think we've kind of tamed to that sort of attitude now, particularly. I mean, particularly with Reservoir Dogs, it's it's kind of very tame. It's just very. There's no there's no real on-screen violence a lot of the time. It's just it's really not. It's really not. I, I was only thinking tonight. Actually, we may may hold up. I'll, I'll I'll expand on the point when we get into going through the film sequentially. But um, I actually think it's got quite a responsible attitude to. Um, Violence, and it it reminds me. uh, And I was, I was, I was put in mind of the film Three Kings, but we'll get to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I think I think I think I agree with you that, Dave. Um, But yeah, uh, what I kind of find funny is is uh, Tarantino kind of made uh, film studies uh, trendy again, like kind of like kind of like the, the the cool film student, which I kind of find is kind of is funny because. Tarantino never went to film school. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He worked in a video store. He worked in a video shop and yeah. learned all he needed to know from that. It's just, I'm going to be really cool and learn, learn about films of the way... Oh, hang on, Tarantino didn't do that. Um, well, that's I, the best, I don't way, think that's the best way to do it, isn't it, really? Is just well, to go out there and make it. it and... I don't know if it is, Becca, because all I'm going to say is, you know, Scorsese, De Palma countless others just the two names to the top oh, of my list. Spielberg definitely yeah, they, they, yeah, but they all went and studied film so well, exactly. no, no one is knocking taking an academic approach oh, God, no, there's nothing, no there's nothing wrong with I think that all, I think all I would say all I would say is some of those slightly awkward early forays you get from certain directors wasn't there with Tarantino I think no. he, he sprung instead of concentrating on slowly building up the craft of it he actually sort of almost embraced the medium as a whole yeah, and he was much more the complete article when he first made a film. Yeah, he kind of just came out of nowhere. It's like here I am. He's almost like a brand in itself. It was like, it was like, and, I, and I, honestly, if you go back and watch Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is the Martin Scorsese early effort, it's actually pretty good. It's got um, Harvey yeah. Keitel in it, like I say. And it's pretty Harvey Keitel's fucking ageless because he looks exactly the same there in about nineteen sixty-seven as well. Um, and it's it's all right, but it looks like an early effort. Nothing wrong with that but it looks like an early effort. And I think I can identify this as an early Tarantino by its style, but that's not born of a naivety. That's just almost born of him building a little bit on it each time. Not necessarily improving on it each time, but building on the way he engages with the medium each time. Yeah, there was a few sort of things I saw here and there, but uh, watching this, I was feel sort of movie mistakes like I saw Sean um Chris Penn, not Sean Penn, uh tripping over the chair. That could be a mistake. It... We've come and put the wrong brother in this show. <laughs> no. Um oh uh, yeah, so you see Chris Penn tripping over the, the, the chair uh in the in the first scene. Um Harvey Keitel not lighting his cigarette and then continuing to, to do... that seemed to me more of like a oh well we'll keep the scene going and then well it happens to be the best scene we'll just keep it in just to yeah he, he, like towards the but, end of the film he nearly kind of fluffs his lines as well so it's all about keeping that sort of stuff in yeah he keeps it don't he's more natural you know naturalistic feeling it, it's, it's almost a bit it, in a way it does feel like the first a first film in that uh, that in that regard but then he, he is like kind of wise beyond his years to, to a degree because he 
He's absorbed I mean, so much material. Well, the thing with Tarantino, he, he, he just seems like a guy who's made to to make films, to write films. Yeah, he's just born to be literate. To, yeah, to talk about film. You know, the, you know, regardless what you think of him or whether you agree with him or not, I, I would gladly like spend the entire day just listening to... Like, you could talk my ear off. I will not be He's one of those people you'd like... Well, I'd like to invite him, those mythical guests that you can invite to dinner party. I, I don't invite I'll him you one of them. because I just want to... I, I, I just want to, like, take in as much as I can because I'll just... Yeah. I'd be constantly asking his opinions on, like, what do you think of that film? And tell me an answer. It's about this making this film or, you know, or meeting that person, you know, all these little yeah, things. Yeah, that interesting. Of, yeah. He's not universally... Um, I think he's universally regarded in that I think he's one of the more important filmmakers of our lifetime. I think mm, he's certainly. he's probably the most distinctive of our lifetime and a lot of people will bristle at that. But if you really think about it and drop your personal feelings out of it, it's true. You can spot a Tarantino film before you can spot almost anything else with the possible exception of something like Wes Anderson, but Wes Anderson has never had the same uh, cultural sort of penetration as, as a Tarantino. No. Um, but yeah, a Wes Anderson, I think, gives it a run. that you, you spot, you see a film that he's done, and you go, well, that's Wes Anderson. Possibly Tim Burton, uh, possibly. Oh, Tim Burton, no, no, yeah. Oh, you're yeah, right. definitely. Tim Burton would definitely give that a run, actually. Um, and he's had more commercial success as well, so that's a really good shout. Um, but he's been a lot more prolific and a lot less consistent in a lot of ways i don't know i mean you, you could argue about it but certainly when i look at tarantino i think he's a very special filmmaker i don't think he's a flawless filmmaker but i think you can throw all the names up you you want and i think almost anyone you throw up is smoke and mirrors this guy is special and you've got to almost put your your, your personal feelings aside and, and understand that no, no matter how you feel about him as a man or his work uh, whenever, whenever, whenever he brings out a, a film, you 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 get excited. We all get excited a little bit. We all get to go, Ooh. you know. I do. You know. Well, yeah, definitely. We all get like, oh, you know, because I know it's an event, of... isn't it? Because he doesn't he doesn't make so many films. Well, he numbers his films as well. Yeah, he uh, does. It'll be like the next I, one. Will I know like... there's a, there's a slight misnumbering between his and how many have actually come out, but the point is, um, we know we like the X film from Tarantino. Yeah, it's not like Ridley Scott where you get a film a year. Uh, and it never will be. I mean, no, he, he takes time. He writes, he writes and directs everything. Now. He averages three to four years. Um, so each one's been, an event. Uh, there have been a couple of longer gaps than that. But it's like when they talk about... I mean, he's involved in Star Trek at the moment in a, in a very sort of embryonic way. And a lot of people are like, oh, what do you think? Do you think he'll direct it? And it's like, no. I, I think that's pretty fucking self-evident that the guy is the author of his own work. If he's pitched something and set up a writer's room, that tells me he's not doing it. He's only ever directed his own writing, and he's only ever written, with the exception of one thing, his own ideas. Um, so I don't think there's a hope in hell he will direct Star Trek. I think he'll be an exec producer, and that's it. Yeah, it could be like another Casino Royale type thing, couldn't it? Um... No, because I think he's inside the camp pissing out this time, not the other way round. Mm. But I, I think it is, it's analogous to me, to George Lucas on the original Star Wars trilogy sequels, if you like. So episodes five and six, where he's not the director, but he's still got a very, very strong voice in proceedings. Because this is effectively his idea that they've mm. developed. Oh, that'd be an interesting thought. Um... 
I cannot see him directing it. And if he were to decide to direct it, because anyone could change their mind, I'm not. I'm not pronouncing he won't, because I can't know for certain. It would be a change of sort of mo, if you like. But if he decided to do it, then he, you know, he's directed TV programs in the past. He's done episodes of ER and things like that, and I think CSI. Mm. Um, and he's he's fitted pretty much into the style of that show. You're not going to get a Star Trek film that feels like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> no. If, if he were to do it, you know, credit the man with a bit more intelligence than that and a bit less ego than that, despite the fact that he does talk up his own work um, and he is clearly um, very self-confident. There is absolutely no way that a Quentin Tarantino directed Star Trek film would feel purely Quentin Tarantino. And I think if we all be honest that we'd all be interested to see that. You know, we pants if you said he'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we all'd like be like Which would be kind of inappropriate really when you think it's probably not out <laughs> for a couple of years and here I am sighted January for Jesus. <laughs> Bit of an with, reaction, really. with an awkward white stain on her. No. What's that? But yeah, my mum comes in late for some reason because she's got uh, a key to this place. What's that? I was just thinking Tarantino might do Star Trek, mum. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I, I I dropped mayonnaise while eating a sandwich on my trousers. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Why are your trousers around your ankles, Dave? Uh, <laughs> it's a big sandwich and what needed to loosen my belt, you know. Uh, <laughs> So I mean, I, I do, I do wonder with Bond because Bond is so distinctive. I do wonder if he would have effectively reauthored the style of that. But I do wonder if it would have been more of a sort of almost Elseworlds novel within that canon. He would have produced this one-off curio. Yeah, yeah. But he's a distinctive voice. I mean, yes, I can tell a Tarantino film, but you can't tell me Django Unchained feels like Pulp Fiction. You can't tell me Jackie Brown feels like Inglorious Bastards. You can't tell me Kill Bill feels like um, anything else. Yeah, it's the guy is a lot more malleable, a lot more, um, and a lot more. um, What's the word? Flexible than than you might give him credit for. Oh, definitely, definitely. He's you know, I guess there's what if there's one thing you can say is that a lot of people kind of talk in that same very fast, slick away. You know, you can kind of tell it's a Tarantino movie by the way that people talk. Yeah, you can. And the thing is, when you go and watch something like Natural Born Killers, um, although he kept a lot of it the same, Oliver Stone rewrote some of the dialogue and he, and he changed some of the emphasis. And it was like listening to bum notes in music. It, it was just, I'm, I was just really sensitive to it. And I was just like, that line's been rewritten. And I could almost tell by the line. I was like, oh, that line's been rewritten. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a, just a particular sensitivity of mine. Now, Tarantino, once or twice in his career, has sounded like a parody of himself, and we'll get to those films. There's one or two where I go, well, even he's not making the dialogue work there. It's not even that it's natural, natural, naturalistic necessarily. Sorry, I was thinking naturalistic as hell, baby. It's not even that because I, it is a heightened reality. It's not quite Kevin Smith, everyone monologuing at each other, but nor does it sound like the man in the cafe on the corner. There is something, but there's, there's something about it. At its worst, it sounds everyone sounds like him. Mm. At at its best, he just captures a wonderful rhythm of speech 
and because he's got incredible casting instincts, people make it sing. Uh, it, I can't explain it any better than that. So, yeah, so, uh, have we done first thoughts? <laughs> we just talked about Tarantino. Not on this we film, we've just been talking about Tarantino. Let's yeah. talk about this film, Becca. Yes, it is a very good film. Um, no, it's just it's one of those films where you, you just you have, you, you have to sit up and take notice. Really, um, everything that's going on, the music, um, the lighting, the sound, it just kind of draws you in. And it's amazing because it's one of those heist movies where you never actually see the heist, and that's fantastic in itself. Um, no, I, I do. I kind of really enjoyed this film. Um, sort of going to the various film studies, and I'm really gutted that I didn't discover it sooner. Um, love Tarantino. You know, there's so much going on in this film. Every single frame has so much to unpick. Just the way his camera goes, like from the very opening scene, you've got this kind of like floating camera um, that kind of shows everybody. Um, and the fact that the narrative itself is kind of like um, one of those like Russian Matryoshka dolls. Um, it kind of got like flashback within a flashback and then it hops back to what's happening now. And, and we kind of start off at the beginning and then you kind of work your way backwards, as it were, a little bit. Um, so you've got a kind of like wandering narrative that. Um, that, you know, it's got a beginning, middle and end, but not necessarily in that order um, that Tarantino has been known as known for. Um, and again, as you said earlier, we see the beginning of his kind of how he, he structures his narratives, almost like chapters. Um, here, they're kind of, you know, we see later on divided into like Mr. Blonde or Mr. Orange, more than like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, like we'll see in Kill Bill, for example. Um, yeah. Again, there's no, you know, there's no score in this film. Um, sound and music he- features very heavily in, in his films. Um, 70s music here again, which is very cool. Uses that to great effect. But yeah, you know, I really, really enjoyed this film. Yeah, it's another thing we haven't really sort of picked up. He's excellent at picking soundtracks. He just sort of guy just picks sort of these random things that people haven't he heard. He writes to them. He yeah. writes to them. He writes. He does. He, he does. He writes a lot of music as well. He's a fan of music as much as he's a fan of film. I think he likes the the marriage of. Pop but again, he's a, he's, just with that as well, he's an analog man in a digital age. Oh, it's, certainly, it, certainly. It, 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 he's quite an old soul. For all the gleeful enthusiasm the man's got, he's very much know, a child of the seventies. <laughs> he, he's very much celluloid and vinyl. Certainly, I think that's what that's what has so much appeal about him. Because um, he's still got, you know, even though like, a lot of my music now is digital, you still have to, you know, something to hold on to, something that's tangible, um, and that you can you can touch. Mm. Um, what was it you say? Yourself? I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say something. Oh yes, no, that was it. Um, I'm looking forward to when we discuss Kill Bill, specifically Volume One. Um, I was all over that film when it came out, and I loved the soundtrack. Um, I got it somewhere. I must dig it out. But you know, I just remember watching which volume, which one? Volume One. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, sorry, the first one. Sorry. Um, I remember when this came out. He was watching. Inter- I was watching interviews with Tarantino, and he was like, "We've got the reason on this, you know, soundtrack," and he was just like so excited. Um, well, the way he came across the five, six, seven, eight song was well, exactly, hell exactly. of a story as well. We'll save that exactly. for another week. But th- that was just complete happenstance as well. The way he ended up with that song in it. It's amazing. But he's talking um, about like you know the people he's managed to get yeah. in in that film. And of course, anyway, that's, that's another podcast I, for another day. Which, what, what I can't even. What's the word? Malgueras Salirosa from yes. Part Two. That's Robert yes. Rodriguez. Just well, wrote exactly. for as a favourite. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible, but yeah, just the way he uses music um, is is is, um, is intriguing yeah. in itself, and something has to be picked apart. But we're going to watch we're going to watch a filmmaker here who is is um, if he'd never changed from this and had knocked out eight, eight films, you'd have eight great films. And and I'm sure there's people out there who prefer he'd stayed like this because maybe they think his films are too long now or whatever. But we will see growth 
and I think that's one of the things that appeals to us about like what focusing on a director, which we haven't really done so far. Um, that we're going to see growth and change as a man ages over the course of, of getting on for 30 years. So it's going to be fascinating. As for Reservoir Dogs, for my opening thoughts, it was my favourite Tarantino film for a long time. It isn't any longer. Um, it's just been overtaken um, by things that have come out since, but also things that were already out at the time. It's just a reappraisal over time. Um, it's not the greatest transfer, the film. It's clean, but it, it, it's kind of a bit washed out. Um, Pulp Fiction is suddenly like somebody's opened the curtains next week. That's a much, much brighter film. But this one was very much black and white. Well, not black and white, literally black and white, but there isn't much colour apart from black and white and red. No, I suppose that's colour true. Palette. I suppose this colour palette is limited anyway, in a way that maybe Pulp Fiction isn't. Um, what it lacks that, say, a Pulp Fiction has, and certainly a Jackie Brown has, is a certain humour. It's not that funny. A few lines are. Um, some of the lines that are funny are actually stolen from elsewhere, but we'll come to them in a minute, because a couple of them are fairly early in the film. Um, what I love about it as well is, I mean, you don't learn anything about Tarantino, but you learn everything about Tarantino, in that you could watch his filmography, and I think you'd know he had a foot fetish. I think that becomes that pretty <laughs> obviously across the series. It's, it's uh, pretty um, obvious in Dust Till Dawn, really. It's like, all right, let's have a scene. Kill Bill 1 from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, he's got a bit... Oh, um, Pulp Fiction, she's walking around without her shoes on. Yeah. But if you're going to fetishise over a set of feet, why Uma Thurman, who's a size 10? But anyway, um, size 10 UK. Maybe he likes big feet. He likes big feet. Um, and he cannot lie. And you would know about his comic books. You can't deny. But you wouldn't necessarily... He doesn't reveal a lot about himself personally. But all of his interests and thoughts and a lot of his ideas as well are strewn across his films. There, there are things in um, this film that characters say that I know was like Tarantino's own personal views on things. And we'll get to them. Had this man never changed an iota from this, he sprung fully, fully formed as an exceptional filmmaker. What he's produced here, I think, has been bettered. But as it's wonderful, it reminds me of the Ratha Khan in a lot of ways. In the way that was a treatise on aging, this is a treatise on on trust and um, how these things get tested by tension and pressure. And really, what it is is an hour at a warehouse augmented with cutaways as to how they got there. That's all this film is, deceptively simple, and I love it a great deal. Yeah, Chris? It, it's just pure character work to me, um, and I really like it for it. When I first watched it, I watched it in that kind of period where it wasn't quite... I, I really loved watching films, but I wasn't quite the astute film watcher, so I was just kind of like, oh, well, some dogs that will have some violence in, and I watched it, I was kind of disappointed with it, really. But that was just before I've really kind of got into It's like films. 3D. If you go to 3D expecting wow, you'll be disappointed. And if you come to this expecting ultraviolence, you'll be disappointed. I, I think I was just at the wrong age. You know, just I wasn't quite mature enough to really appreciate it. But, you know, I, you know by, by the time I watched Pulp Fiction, um, but, you know, by the time it was on TV, I was like, this is this is just so watchable. This is like, this, this is great. I love it. Uh, and then you come back, and you come back to us while dogs, and you kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, 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 I get it now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I think um, this is very clearly, um, to me, a independent, a very independent first feature. But it's a first feature from, as we've established, a master filmmaker. 
there are some things that are rough around the edges, but you can just maybe it might be because I know the kind of majority of the story around around the film, but you can, you can just tell how he is. He, he he's been working with screenwriting and with it trying to get a film made for a few years previous to this. So it, I think he's kind of matured when he came to making his first film. So by the time he's made his first film. He kind of landed with a bang. Yeah. What was I that think... first film he made? Because he made another film that never got released, and he said that after three years or whatever it was of I don't think it's even slowly, finished. He said, "Yeah, he said he looked at it and he didn't. He hadn't made what he thought he'd made." I always found that quite an interesting way to explain it. He didn't go, "It was shit" or, or whatever. He actually said, "I didn't. I hadn't made what I thought I'd made." That what you think you're shooting in your head and what you're actually shooting can be two different things. I think that uh, happens quite a lot uh, to many filmmakers. I think uh, sometimes, yeah. which is why sometimes they maybe don't try and keep to that. They just try and think, well, I'll find the film in the editing suite, and sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. Uh, but I think I think Tarantino said that about Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was watching a documentary just now, and he's, he's, and someone said like Tarantino said like. Uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure. It kind of came out different. And he watched it. It's like Pulp Fiction. It's like fucking hell. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a very solid debut. Uh, it's, you know, I think it's very pop culture heavy, but I think it kind of was the beginning that changed cinema. Now, I think it's, it was kind of at, came at a time where we were wanting something different. We wanted something new, and here it came. It was like part pass off the nineties. It, it couldn't have been better timed. I mean, it, it came out around the time I turned 16. By the time I got to see it, it was, I was nearly 18. Um, because it, it kept getting re-released because we couldn't get the home video release, which is pure politics. The BBFC don't do that anymore, or at least I'm, I'm not aware that they do. No, Someone no, may correct me, but it, it, it was much more being seen to ban it. It was the, you know, it was the equivalent of keeping Myra Hindley in prison, which I'm not saying she shouldn't have been, but that political core celebra when so many similar things are getting different treatment. That's all I mean. Yeah, it was, and, the, it was the idea that like you know like violence or stuff in film could corrupt. It's not even that, Chris. When you come back to it, Reservoir Dogs isn't actually that violent a film. Yeah. It really, really, it genuinely is not. And um, and so it was almost being treated according to people's perceptions of it rather than... It's a bit like the BBC will release something and it will get 40 complaints and then the newspaper will make some vague allusion to it and suddenly it's got 20,000 complaints and the vast majority of those 20,000 never actually saw it. Reservoir Dogs is a little bit like that. that um, most of the people considering it this horrendous ultra-violent you know, violent festival of sort of fucking torture porn of something I haven't seen it because it's just not what it is it's men stood around talking it is more, i mean much, much more than anything else i mean should we say the infamous part is probably the ear cutting scene which we don't actually see it the fact at that... the point of when he's actually doing that so the camera moves away from the action and then comes back yeah to finally have been severed so it it is still grim. I mean, it's still like, oh god, that's just really good. But at, at no point does it feel. Do you feel like it's not gratuitous, is it? No, you don't. You don't feel like anyone's or like even Tarantino's getting off on it. It's like every no. sort of I mean, like it's... every wound, every sort of bullet shot, every every bit of violence is kind of like felt, and it's not necessarily mm. like 
oh this is yeah i mentioned the i mentioned the film three kings earlier the film three kings which i only ever saw once i saw it in the cinema like christ 18 years ago nearly um and i've never seen it since yeah, it's but, I, enough. I, but but it, but it stuck with me it's a david o russell film and I, even though i've seen it once i'd recommend it i think it's worth seeing it's a george clooney film now he, he explains at one point with almost like a, a visual to accompany it what happens when you shot what 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 happens where to the wound where the bullet mm. goes in and how it gets affected and all that and i can't help but think of that when we see Agent mr orange, orange shot yeah shot very early in the film because normally in Hollywood films they're either dead instantly or they can still run around like Olympic sprinters even though when they've been shot six times or whatever this man is now disabled and possibly on the way to death and we don't know and sort of White is half telling him something that is meant to reassure him but could sort of been true in that he could he could live for quite a long time like that but we don't know and he's slowly bleeding out and he's in agony. And 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 Tim Roth, I mean, Tim Roth's accent's awful in this, but his, his performance other than that's pretty good. When he's in the car and kicking his legs around, that's a pure pain response. It's like when we're like, it's like when someone cuts us and we arch our back and things like that. You know, all the things nurses are trained to look for. It's It's quite responsible in its attitude to violence, I think, but... That might be a minority view. It's quite accurate as well, isn't it? Because he had sort of a medical trained professional on set just kind of make sure that everything was pretty much true to life. Mm. He must have paid... I I just know... The other thing is Tarantino started this off funding this. I mean, we could talk about the making of it in a bit, but um, some of the funding he got from a guest slot on the Golden Girls playing an Elvis impersonator. There you go. There's a story. How to get your That's big a fun break. fact for you. <laughs> Appear on the well, basically, it wasn't until like, you got Harvey Cartel on board, um, and that really brought the funding up to an acceptable level. Well, what it was is he, he had it part funded. And he, he sold the script for true romance, isn't it? Didn't he? Yeah, the, yes. the, yeah. He had it part funded, uh, and the guy who was going to direct with him was a guy called Lawrence Bender who I always tend to get confused with Lawrence Tierney. Two different people and two very <laughs> different temperaments and ages. Um, Lawrence Bender was taking acting classes at the time and I'm going to get this wrong because it's a bit convoluted but it's something like the acting teacher's husband was friends with Harvey Keitel's wife or something like that it was that sort of relationship and Lawrence Bender had that script the, the, the teacher saw it, liked it and ended up on the sly slipping it to uh, Harvey Keitel who loved it what asked to be in it and said he would help to get it funded. Now, one of the things he really helped with was they were working in a, they were casting in a very small pool of LA actors. And Harvey Keitel said, you need to go to New York for the best guys. And he paid for them all to go to New York and have casting sessions there. That's what he funded by and large. But also he brought a cachet with it as well that we've got Harvey Keitel on, on board. Yeah. It gets a bit, a bit of name credits, like gets, gets things moving, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a one and a half million dollar film. This should be way out of the range of getting a Harvey Keitel on board. Mm. So, like, yes, yeah, so, so I think it also gets heads turning as well. Like, once you have like, oh, so what's this new independent filmmaker uh, film starring Harvey Keitel? Oh, okay, let's have a look at yeah. this. Yeah, this gets a little bit of interest then, doesn't it? So, um... yeah. although Harvey Keitel has done other independents, mm. things like Smoke and so on, but. Um... What else to tell, uh, talk about with the making of this? Until, uh, it was filmed in a heat wave. Uh, the, the, the sort of building they're in for the vast majority of the film is actually a converted mortuary. 
and the building you see used as uh, Tim Roth's apartment is over the top of it, actually, in reality. Yeah, well, we can talk about money. the re- we can talk. Yeah, we can talk about the rest of it as we go through. Yeah, I did think that looked like a huge apartment for one guy. Yeah, for one dude. Yeah, in LA as well, and, and all the, all the expensive sort of costs are on the coasts over there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, they really are. And plus, I mean, it kind of all, all the cast use their own suits and own clothes, and I think the, the costume designer kind of made you know this kind of the suits like for free, um, just because she, you know she was so in love with the crime genre. But otherwise, all the other costumes and things like that that belong to the actors. So try and save a few, a few quid. Yeah, this is a low budget film. Um, yeah. Read a lot on it today, but as I say, we'll, t- we'll talk about it as we go through. Um, shall we discuss the film sequentially, folks? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's go to work. I, I, only, hey, want to nice. couple, I only want to say a couple of things about this opening scene, um, and then I'll kind of let you guys talk about it, actually. Uh, just talk about things I've, I've seen before. There's a point where um, Harvey Keitel says to Blonde, I think, so White says to Blonde something like, if you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologise. Yeah. yeah. They've got that line from Muhammad Ali. Around the yeah. time Muhammad Ali was fighting Jimmy Ellis. I've, I've seen the footage of it. Muhammad Ali delivers it much better as well. Muhammad he Ali always does. He stood in the ring. He's, he's walking around the sort of apron of the ring at the end of a sort of public sparring session. And he's just chatting with the press. It isn't even a formal Q&A. He's just like, there's just a bit of banter going back and forth. And he says, and you can tell Ali can't quite hear what's being said to him because it's a throng of a sort of crowd. And he says, what? And he says, what? And and you hear the the, the um, reporter say, Jimmy Ellis said he dreamt he beat you. And he just goes, oh, if he dreamt he beat me, you better wake up and apologize. But it was, um, it was delivered by Muhammad Ali. The second point I want to make about this, or the, there's three actually. The second point is the thing about tipping, where he says, I don't tip. That Tarantino claims that as something that was his was his opinion in early years he said because he worked at a video store he said so he was in a minimum wage job that no one deemed tip worthy no. so that was his argument the third point i want to make is the madonna uh, the madonna bit which is where this whole sequence starts now tarantino's character mr brown comes up with this theory that like a virgin the madonna song is about a woman who's had a ton of men uh, dick, 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 as, as he described it. I mean, dicks is that a lot. A lot, yeah. Um, fine, uh, meeting a, a fantastically well-endowed man, and it hurts her for the first time since virginity. Apparently, Tarantino went and asked Madonna if he was right. That was his <laughs> real opinion. I, it's so, so clear that that's what he generally thinks. I'm going to yeah, put that yeah, in the film. The correct answer is actually what Blonde no. says. Blonde says, no, she's been screwed around, treated badly, and she finds love. That's what it's about. Yeah. Um, and he had a copy that's of That's what Madonna it. said. She, you were back to him, got it signed, and was like, no, it's about love. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'll Madonna, kiss, kiss. He had a copy of. Yeah, that's just completely blown me off. <laughs> and not in a good way, Dave. Uh... No. No, seriously, where was I? That was, you know what that was like. That was like, you know, when um, Alan Partridge is talking everyone through the spy who loved me, and Michael suddenly goes at the last minute, right? <laughs> and a parachute comes out. Michael, Stop getting Bond wrong. Michael. 
Right. Right. He had a copy of Erotica, and Madonna signed it with "It's about love. It's about love, not no Quentin. It's about love, not dick." (laughs) So, um, but that was his real theory, and he went to Madonna with it. What do you guys make of this? Yeah, I generally think it's. I'm watching it. It's clearly like it's kind of funny how the opening, well, the first thing you actually hear is Quentin Tarantino doing a pop culture reference that kind of set the 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 benchmark for Tarantino's work. Yeah, I mean, the Madonna, Madonna thing is clearly Tarantino's opinion at that time, at least. Uh, he's, yeah, I assume he's changed his opinion now. Madonna's corrected him. He's a, 28, uh, he's a 28, 27, 28 year old man yeah. when writing it. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like, I like the idea of just like the idea of. It's kind of difficult because it, it this film came at came at a, a time or when I was at a certain age where I wouldn't be that aware, but. In terms of gangster films, having gangsters sit around in a in a in a cafe, talking about just general shit, rather than like oh yeah right we're gonna sort of general gangster sort of like crime stuff or being all sort of stereotype. They're actually talking about regular stuff before they actually you know before they do a job. It was literally like uh, oh that's like that that Madonna song and like yeah I I, I don't believe in tipping you know all all this kind of stuff I. I think that's really kind of cool and kind of funny in its own way. Um, it's also because Tarantino, the way he writes dialogue, just makes it just sing, as you say, Dave. Uh, and what I kind of really like about the tipping bit, even though now it feels so cliche now, or it feel, or it's just so well known, it almost feels like a famous bit, almost that a comedian does. I, I, it does bring, you know, I, I do find myself going, yeah, you know, Mr. Pink does have a point. You know, I don't agree with him, Mr. but, Pink he, has but a point. he does Mr. have Pink a point. Has, <laughs> Mr. Pink has a defensible point in almost everything he says in the entire film. Yeah. Pretty much. You don't always agree. I mean, I didn't, I don't, he's I don't, like, I he's like the brains of the outfit. I, well, he's not no, he's wrong, but he has an argument it, every no, single it, time. No, definitely. Yeah. He's always wrong. You, but... think later on, you think later on when everyone is like losing their shit, He's not necessarily the calmest because a lot of what a lot of what he's saying is coming out of fear. No, but he's trying to get it. But, together. but he's actually he's actually the most rational most of the time. Yeah, he's, he's actively thinking. Yeah, for sure. That's that's the thing. He's always actively thinking. So it's it's like the way like you know Mr. White sort of says, "I don't trust Mr. Blonde." He's like saying, "Well, I know he's not. Well, regardless of that, he might be a psycho. I know exact. I know he isn't the rat because no." Because clearly he can't be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, that, that, just, I, I do like the scene. It's quite entertaining. I, the only thing I picked up on it was uh, Chris Penn and tripping up the tables. They walked off. That's about it. I've never noticed it, and I've seen this film a double digit number of times. I'd say. Yeah, he sort of never like, noticed it's, that. It's, it's like the trips over the chair. What, Is uh, that when they're leaving? Yeah, just as leave. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's fading out. So I'm probably not even looking. I'm probably glancing yeah. around waiting for the music to kick in. Yeah, it, yeah, it's literally like that. But it's, it's I've only literally saw it like today on this viewing. It's funny they do seed some things because they're talking about a piece of music at one point as well, where they were like, "I didn't realize the thing she was singing about in the song was this." We hear that song, whichever yeah. it was, in his apartment later. Um, and they also do talk about K. Billy Super Sounds of the seventies. Some of the stuff, some of the, some of the stuff just feels like very throw like. <sighs> Like some lines of dialogue, Mister Blonde has doesn't feel like his character he has later on. It feels very, he feels very much like a calm individual. 
Yeah. <laughs> like some of the stuff just feels like, oh, just give Mr. Blue something to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Mr. Blue. I mean, Mr. Brown, if it wasn't Quentin Tarantino, would be there for much the same reason, but certainly Blue is there to like bulk numbers out. Yeah. Played by Eddie Bunker. Eddie Bunker was a career criminal until about his early 40s, somewhere in the mid 70s. Um, and then he came out and became like a writer and actor. Uh, he wrote, did he write Runaway Train? I think he may have done. Yeah. Um, so it, it's almost like a talisman for the film more than a character. Yeah, more like it. Okay, he does actually look like a, uh, a criminal and things like that. So. Yes. Yeah, he does. Convincingly because he, he is. Yeah. <laughs> God rest his soul. Um so, yeah, yeah but, I mean, he he, he had his, he had like his first child or something like the year after this film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he made a life for himself late in life. Oh, well, good for him! Yeah, um, <laughs> congratulations on. Let's patronise Eddie Bunker. Hey. Good job, little buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, yeah, then we get to the the should we say the iconic opening shot, which now like. Now watching, now it just feels very much film student like mimicking Tarantino. Even though yeah. this is this is completely Tarantino. new. This yeah. <laughs> I know. That was just a nice little cool shot. Yeah. I mean, it's just the choice of music is perfect. Little green bag, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I think um, that, that's that's what's not wrong with this film, but it's kind of much to the point now where it is so famous, it is so iconic, just because it has been parodied by. Everybody. Yeah, I mean, they parodied um, that in coupling. They went off to like a wedding or something, and then they slowly walked down the road, exactly. Like, well, yeah, gently talking... and slowly exhaling cigarettes, <laughs> and suddenly the and women are like, "Will you stop doing stupid. your reservoir dogs bit?" Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, um, we see a brought to our screens, which I'm very excited about. Um, but now I think, yeah, any, any kind of like popular culture, like Family Guy, Simpsons, um, other kind of films and TVs, they have to. Literally, or as we uh, like to call both of them, stuff Becker watches. <laughs> well, it's kind of th- things that generally, you know, provided a point of sort of a touchstone. Because yeah. um, it's not me that watches them, other people watch them too. Um, but it is still you, you that watches them. Well, yeah, but as myself and others, not so just... it's not, you know, not just, not just confined to me, unfortunately. I know you like to write pigeonhole and say the stuff I don't watch, but it's just the stuff, I've, you know, that I like. Um, but it's basically things that have kind of been within the popular, you know, it's... it's part of the popular narrative um certainly within filmmaking as well like you just especially in the mid, mid- late 90s sure. please write if to you... us via aol <laughs> back in the 90s that that's, a, that's about back. as up to date as the simpsons but no, it's basically kind of just everything that sort of came out in that sort of mid to late 90s just literally had to had to include like the the token tarantino thing um, but it's, be- it's better at two decades removed than it was at five years removed because at five exactly. years removed this was being done to death. This exactly, and, that, and now you can look back at and, it. And, and by the time yeah. you get to 2000, you still had like a few remnants of this, and then you had all that fucking Guy Ritchie Mockney fucking bollocks as well. And that's it. Well, it wasn't um, copying Guy Ritchie, oh. it was copying Kill Bill, and that was annoying as it got. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think that's that's exactly my point. It's now several years removed, um, and it's kind of gone back around, um, and it seems a lot better. But I still think, you know, it's, it's really iconic. The music is cool. If you ever want to do like, a gangster scene, you have to include... Um, either Steve's Wheel or Little Bean Bag. Um, it's just one of those really iconic soundtracks, really. Yeah, I mean, there's better coming. I think the next two weeks have better soundtracks than this. Mm, oh, sure. What a confident debut. Definitely Kill Bill Part 1. 
before we move on, uh, there's one thing I just I, I did pick up on this viewing. Uh, it's only just a minor little tidbit, but the actual rat of the group is the one that actually rats out Mr. Pink about not tipping. It's like, who who, yeah, does. who, who hasn't tipped? It does. Yeah. I only noticed that today. Because yeah. uh, Joe comes back from the um, bathroom yeah. and says, who hasn't kicked in a book? And he, and he just says, Mr. Pink. Yeah. That's the, that's the sort of thing. Oh, okay, that's probably a coincidence or a bit, really. I thought, okay, that's probably a character thing or character. Because there's certain other things about um, Mr. Orange that kind of stuck up because he's the only Brit in the cast. So the thing about him having like a dodgier accent or a put on accent or something about him that just stands Fits out. Fits trying to fit in. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, it could be down to the fact that he just doesn't look one of them. Uh, and I think that's, it's largely down to the fact that he's. I think he looks younger than everyone else, uh, so it plays in the part that he's just trying to fit in. He's trying to—he's the new kid. He wants to kind of like. Although I would have thought, I would have thought Chris Penn would have been the youngest at this point. Yeah. Oh, that's true. But I, I, in terms of the actual group, you know, because Chris, Chris Penn is Chris there Penn is, by is, by family, yeah. and he's yeah. not really like the member of the, the gang. He's the money penny of proceedings. He really is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't look quite as good as an address, but rocks a, se- uh, a shell suit really well. Um, yeah, that shell suit. And didn't have a suit. Foam. Yeah. But yeah, no, I just, I just thought I'd point that out because I just only remembered now. I was like, shit, yeah, that was, that's that's a little that's a little thing I've, I've noticed. But anyway, so we get yeah. the we I come out of the credits. We yeah. come out of that sequence to him screaming. He's been shot in the gut, and he's also, lying. In the back I, of his I don't car. know whether to mention it now or whether to mention it at the end. It's a spoiler alert. Spoil alert, we're going to talk through the film anyway. Well, the credits are in orange. And he turns out to be the rat. That's not a spoiler. That's a font choice. (laughs) It's kind of a spoiler. Yeah. No, it's not. (laughs) It really isn't. Well, no, it's it's not really a a spoiler. Um, It's like a clue, a hint. Um, I think it's more than a font choice. I think you can read things into it. No, you can't, I'm honest. <laughs> well, I did it for my ASL studies, and that's why I got full marks. So. Doesn't make it right, though. <laughs> just no, coming up with some inter- theories don't make it. No, right. it's just one of those things. I think it's one of those things where, like, you can, you know, you can read too much into it. Um, um, but I think Tarantino is definitely one of those filmmakers that he kind of. Hey, you know, and they all kicked in a buck, and four years, <laughs> f- four films later, there was Buck who was there to fuck. Coincidence? I think not. I, I, I'm, I'm just, just, just going to see five years down the line, and there's times he's going to be interviewed somewhere, and he's going to say, "Oh yeah, the the, the font font oh, choice was totally meant to be there to represent." <laughs> Sorry, and Beck's going to be like, "See, I told you." <laughs> well, a, we, a, a plus in film K studies, Billy, motherfuckers. I just think it's funny. That's all. What, what made you decide to uh, make orange to him? What well, you I just fancy well, the colour, you know. I, I did AS level study. Nineteen seventy two. When I was nine. No, well, it's, it's you know it's, it's a nice bright colour and it makes it stand out. Um, I think it's interesting yeah, that I mean, he kind of picks it, that style. It's very seventies. That's why I thought. It is exactly. But... It is very seventies. Definitely, it's kind of it's in that kind of like seventies style font as well. Um, and it's very eye catching and it's quite lurid. Also if as we'd well. gone to the credits and they'd look like turds floating up the screen, we'd have really <laughs> gone, oh, I know the guy at Tarantino's the rat. That's <laughs> <laughs> what he says in the film, you know. But... Yeah, yeah, he's a, that's a bit too close to Mr. Shit. 
Yeah. So they they seem to have deliberately chosen a very light um, interior on the car he's bleeding out in. So that's kind of distressing. Yeah, you actually see all the blood everywhere, really, don't you? He's like, I think it's more in his performance. He's literally going like, he's screaming, he's panicking, he's making sounds that you generally can't contain his pain. You know, you know, you do see it when people are in pain. They'll kick their legs or arch their back, and he's he's doing the lot. Yes. it's really good, and and um, what does he say? His first name, White's first name, is Larry, isn't it? Yeah. Lots of drop references to future Tarantino films to come. Yeah, because he works with Alabama. Um, Vega. She, she must have been. She must have been gutted when she was dumped with Christian fucking Slater after that. <laughs> um, and then uh, you can, yeah, work with a Hollywood legend or Christian Ooh, Slater. Christian Slater. Um, Ooh, there's refer- yeah, Vic, Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde, is the brother of Vincent Vega. Um, John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction. Uh, there's also there is also doesn't bother me because I think Michael Madsen is uniquely lacking in any fucking talent whatsoever except chain smoking. That's because he was in Dine of a Day. Oh. It's just no, it's nothing to do with that. I think he's crap. He's one of these characters that suited this role, but that was about exactly. it. But that's all, yeah. uh, you know, I, I well, sh- Kill Bill. He's actually off-puttingly bad in that. So, to be fair, I don't. I haven't seen him in much at all. Uh, and I, I do wonder whether he's one of these guys who had potential but has just squandered it and is somehow only Tarantino has actually managed to get out of him. Yeah, I mean, in, the in, only films I've seen him in, apart from Dino of Date, were Tarantino movies. So. In, in, I've in, seen him in... Wasn't he in Free Willy? Yes. Or Complimentary oh, Penis, yeah. as we call it over here. <laughs> yeah, I am seen Free, Free Willy. Maybe I'm looking all the places. Oh, you and your Americanisms, Chris. <laughs> Complimentary Penis is a wonderful series of films for kids. Oh, well, I, I was known as Release Bill, but there you are. Um... Okay, you crushed our boy. Oh, what a mess. <laughs> yeah, you've crushed my boys. Get off me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've, I've just think he, he kind of whispers and chain smokes and everything, and that's about it. He's, he's, he's okay, but beyond this role, I'm never that happy to see him. So the idea that there, there would have been like a film that would have been like forty percent him, like the Vega Brothers, I'm I'm kind of happy enough that didn't happen. I'm sure Tarantino would have worked, but I think it's one of those ideas that I, it's based on something that I was just kind of throwing because Tarantino likes to kind of combine his universes, like yeah. in in a, in, a, in, a, in a more passing way. It's just something like kind of it's it's kind of more like a fun thing. So I, I think when it came to this, like. He'll see he was writing True Romance at the same time, so it's kind of thing he thought it was kind of fun. And then later mm. on, he kind of, I'll reuse the same surname and like may- maybe it is his brother. Who knows? Maybe they're related, you know, and kind of leave it open for people to kind of go. Yeah, the, he does reference Marcellus here as well. We do believe that is Marcellus Wallace from okay. Pulp Fiction. So his universes are co- are created, are, are connected, and he has confirmed that it's effectively his movie universe and then his movie movie universe and i'll explain that when we get to kill bill but yeah um well i'll, I'll give you the outline of it now he's got his movie universe which is all the characters we know and they are related um and they are related to a couple of other universes as well like broom hilda from django unchained is the grandmother of shaft but uh, you've also got the movies the people in that universe would watch and that includes um, Pop Fiction, uh, not Pop Fiction, Kill Bill. Mm. So, so Kill, got, uh, Kill Bill's a movie. Is, it's is... a movie. It's a movie in the Quentin Tarantini 
Tarantino's movie universe. Tarantini. Tarantini. It's the it's the it's a collaboration between Quentin Tarantino and Frutini. <laughs> Is it Tarantino for kids? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the man from Tarantini. He said yes. Okay. <laughs> We've lost the fucking plot here. What were we up to? Oh, uh, oh yeah. T- t- yeah. Tim t- Roth screaming. And um, Larry's going, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and they, yeah. get to the, they get to the hideout, which is kind of, as I say, it's a converted mortuary for the pur- purposes of this film. Yeah, it just looks like an empty door warehouse. I mean, at times I thought it maybe might have been uh, like like a, a meat packing place or something. I don't know. something. Like... It's got an abattoir feel to it, yeah. hasn't it? Obviously, yeah. it's got big ramps and, and some place where we've had big machinery. Um, but yeah... They they get there. Uh, Orange is trying to convince him to look, just just drop me off hospital. I won't rat. Like I I just need medical help. I'm I'm gonna die otherwise. You know. Uh, and he's yeah. He's trying to get him to uh, just drop him at hospital anyway. Now mm. obviously only he knows at this point he's a cop. Mm. So bizarrely, in being able to use the fact he's undercover to get out of a dangerous situation, he's actually convincing um, White that he's brave because he said christ he's willing to get himself put away without implicating us in in anything um what i really like about this because it seems such a simple film and it is but the timings are exquisite we get a certain amount of time uh, with of white and orange and setting the setting Mm -hmm. them into that environment where most of the film is going to take place and just bang on where it feels sensible to introduce somebody else pink walks in yeah and then we get a certain amount of pink and just as time it time comes to broaden it out again we realize blonde is stood there the film is exquisitely paced yeah i mean you get what 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 you find with with that you get you kind of get like uh what's happened through their dialogue so you get to talk through like kind of like what so you get like a little bit into what blonde has done or, or how yes. they've seen as Blonder's done. Uh, and then you get, like, a, a flashback with, with a little bit of intro of, like, how Mr. White got involved with everything. Yeah, we don't, at the start of the film, when we know it's gone wrong, we don't know what... We know it was a heist. We don't know what of or what they were all doing. Mm-hmm. Through the course of the film, it's revealed to us that it's a diamond wholesalers, isn't it? Yeah. It's a diamond wholesaler, so... That implies not retail, but it does come off as a store, but we'll see. And they're all in doing different things, uh, including when Blonde is on like crowd control, which is one of the reasons it all goes wrong. Because all he's supposed to do is keep people calm, but somebody obviously hits an alarm and he starts shooting the place up. We know that Pink basically runs for it and just grabs a car. Yeah. Um, and we know that um, White and orange get out and manage to get a woman out of the car who in pure reflex she shoots she shoots orange and orange shoots her in pure response and the look on tim's roth's face yeah. is incredible well that, that happens actually late on in the film that's like i know it does yeah. i'm just trying to like paint where we are yeah. we actually get background on white first don't we mm. at, at joe and uh nice guy eddie's who we think is joe's son or nephew one of the two is at um his office and he's just talking about jobs he's been doing with this lady alabama who is i presume alabama from pop, uh, true romance yeah and uh they're trying to get him Heck involved of a thief. 
Sorry? Heck of a thief, as he says. Heck of a thief. Yeah. yeah. You, you get a sense that they're, they're kind of old friends, they've worked before and, and, and all, all that kind of thing. So. And he's quite protective towards her as well. So yeah. unlike Christian Slater, he's more of a sort of uh, uncle figure to a father figure, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I think Mental. it's also, also a sense that he's kind of, he's a kind of guy who does build attachment, so. He... Yes. Um, it's the sort of thing that of all the characters in this film, I do take most of them for what they are and... and that makes this film quite a clinical exercise in some respects in that I don't care about them beyond the film much, but white of all of them is the character I'd like to know more about. And I think that's because I think you've just put it into words and I've never really thought about it before that. I think perhaps there are stories of him forming attachments in Mm. in perhaps a way most people in those types of jobs don't. But but the, the conversation between pink and white is 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 purely about trust. It's purely about piecing together how how long it took the police to get there, who was doing what, what went wrong, if anyone's followed them, what's happened to Orange, and then it gets a bit prickly because pink is showing. This is white's kind of sentimental, isn't he? And pink possibly because he has just seen someone sh- just shot right next to him. Mm. But pink is being very business-like pink is being very we need to do this and if he dies he dies sort of attitude and it does end up with them having a fight yeah um you know white punches him and then kicks him and they pull patrol guns and it's again it's that kind of like um director authorship where you actually it's just two guys basically pointing guns at each other but it's it's a tarantino shot it's iconic like you know, mm. if you show you still of it, that is. I mean, I, I mean, I saw stills of that before I even know what it was. You know, it was like I was reading like. And uh, cameras, the camera pulls back very gently to re- reveal the, the camera work in this is really fluid. It's quite unflashy, but it's very, very fluid. The camera tends to keep moving, but it's really, really unobtrusive. Yeah, I think it does that to kind of add momentum to something that's actually quite still. You know, what I mean, it's like 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 as Becca was saying um, in the diner scene you know when the, the camera's like moving between it but it's kind of add like it gives it more momentum as like you are basically just a few guys sat at a table I'm talking like guys talking it adds momentum it builds up like kind of like it, it rather than just sort of like a few shots of like cut to this face cut to that face cut to that shot it adds a bit more it makes it more yeah. easy to watch engage with so we get the reveal of blonde blonde is basically stood drinking what looks like doesn't necessarily mean it is McDonald's or something, but he's gone to like a drive-through yeah. and grabbed a drink, which is another thing about how these no, guys and, and eating and eating because you just and eating. yeah they they he's basically grabbed fast food on the way <laughs> from a Ca- calm as fuck and like, we've, as we already established, he's killed a few people already. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so just like to get in, yeah, this guy's fucking insane. <laughs> Then we cut to his background, and his background is, and this is key for the end of the film, he has done prison time for Joe and Eddie. Mm. He's basically gone away when all he had to do to cut a deal was say their names, and he didn't. So they're now looking after him. We see him again in the same office we saw White, and they're just trying to get him work to get him out up from under the yoke of quite a nasty prison officer, or a parole officer, rather. Mm. Um he of all of them has real chemistry. Well, they say they say nasty. You mean competent? <laughs> Bastard does his job, Chris. Um, 
Yeah. But making I mean, sure criminals don't do carry, any criminal activity. You carry, they haven't thought it through because, like, what if you want to carry on committing crimes? That's not useful, <laughs> is it? <laughs> right? Um, he's got this one. What an arsehole. <laughs> this is one of the few bits of the film I find irritating. The, the sort of fucking, like, roughhousing between him and nice guy Eddie is really fucking irritating. What you mean the the homophobic kind of well not homophobic but kind of like it's not well, it's it's not even that it's I don't know what it is actually it's not the fact that they're doing loads of bumming each other jokes that's it's quite so, funny. Out of like tone it's, it's not the right it doesn't fit the rest of the film it's a bit weird I I, I look I, the, I, it kind I, of establishes sort of like character but it doesn't really follow through no excuse the pun I, but it's just you like want to follow bit... through in that scenario when someone's trying to bum you no you don't want to do that I... but it just it kind of it's just, it adds a bit of humour I guess but it just seems to me out of place for the rest I mean, of the film to be honest the whole film was all kind of set around secret identity so basically they don't talk about any of the personal shit so, they're, they're, so imagine they don't even talk about their actual relationship with the boss uh, they no no hang on they could because um, he's the one that they use names to when he okay. turns up it's Vic, it's Vic Vega he's done prison time for them um, they can talk about whatever they want in that office those no, three I, 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 yeah in yeah, in terms of everyone else not like, not in that scene I mean talk about outside everyone because, else cannot yeah so because like, White breaks the rules basically so no one really is sp- like the idea is no one's really supposed to know like who they are, other than, like, you're Mr. White, and that's it. So any anything else outside of that, in terms of who they are personally. So here it's like, you know, you get to actually see them be themselves. Like, you know, obviously he's, he has a really close relationship with uh, Nice Guy Eddie. Uh, they're almost like pals. So they, they, they are acting like kids, like, dicking around. There's a kind of, like... They, they, they almost have, like, a, a competition between, like, you know, who's the favourite between him and the boss. You know, there's, like, well, you know, it, 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 it is that kind of childish kind of like oh i'll fight for it you know but i love you like a brother almost like kind of thing so i'm i'm fine with it i don't you know it just kind of to me just adds more to their character to their history okay we come out of that to right so we get his backstory which is and i'm sure nuts, nice guy he got his backstory sorry but he's <laughs> he's he's extraordinarily loyal yeah so um that does play in at the end of the film because they try to sort of play it off on him as a nutcase and Joe and Eddie are like, no, this is the one guy we would trust. Uh, so we cut back to orange, white and blonde. So at the time we get Mar- Marvin out of the uh, car. Oh, the car. Marvin Nash, the cop, yeah. Yeah. Leading to the most infamous <laughs> bit of the film. On the way back, not only has he bought take, you know, drive through. He's uh, kidnapped a police officer, put him tied up in the boot of the car. They put, they bring him inside, beat the shit out of him, and then tie him to a chair. Don't these all just sound lovely? What does um? What did uh, now? This is the one bit I didn't get tonight because I think it was the one time because I was pretty mesmerised by this film. There's one bit where I just wasn't concentrating, and it was like I'll ask later because I can't remember. What do Pink and White go off to do to leave Blonde alone with? Marvel. Well, the idea is because Nice Geddy comes and visits. Literally, comes is it in. to go and change cars over or something? Ba- basically, so he points out, look, right, you've you stashed the diamonds. Uh, we've got a load of cars, so let's take the car. I'll I'll take them to the location. We'll pick up the diamonds. We'll relocate back here. It's basically sort of like let's move the cars. Let's get the diamonds. Let's like. I mean, it's an excuse to leave Blonde alone, but I just yeah. couldn't even remember what the cover story was. Yeah. 
that 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 was that was the reason why uh, okay. that's like they they were going to like basically like make sort of remove the cars to like relieve suspicion to make sure like that you know it look it does still look like an abandoned area and then pick up the diamonds as well. Right. Uh, and then yes, yeah, so we have that scene which is uh, infamous, should we say? Yeah. This is this before we get Orange's backstory. No, the, uh, Orange's backstory is after he shoots. It's in the him. middle of this somewhere, isn't it? No, he, he he shoots him first, doesn't he? Then he sort of like. He's, then we get his backstory, yeah. right? Because it okay, is the longest. It is the longest backstory as well, obviously. It is. It is. We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, so they tie. He ties him to a chair, puts on uh, K Billy Super Sounds of the seventies, which is just starting the Steelers Wheel song stuck in the middle with you. Mm. Steelers Wheel being the Jerry Rafferty band, same guy who did Baker Street. Um, this is possibly his first iconic piece of cinema. Yeah, the one thing that's kind of get referenced a lot of times. It's also like the, the bit, the fact that it had an ear slicing off moment. Oh, so um, but it's when you watch it, it's so brutal. Like it's, it's the, but everything about the the thing that's brutal about it when I watch it is, firstly, they give him quite a hard hitting beating. But secondly, the just the way he's throwing petrol at him and laughing, yeah, that's way harder than the ear cutting bit. It, it's it's the kind of it's the how casual he's, he is. He's just like, yeah, I'm just standing there. Looking I don't at give it. a shit what you know, but I taught you. Yeah, um, and it's just like he's there dancing with the with the switch with the with the um, razor, and then he just stands there, looks at him as if saying, "Where should I cut?" And so in that alone, just builds anticipation, just dread. Yeah. And he, then he does it, and then he just slices his ear off, and yeah. he's just like they're mocking him, like sort of "Hello, can you hear me? yeah, like yeah. fucking horrific, like." And it's all done to this John. Like, it is, it is, but as violent cinema goes, we've seen a hell of a lot worse. But think, yeah, and I would argue this: if you're going to do something horrific, you should be kind of like this, like make it kind of gross and and yeah. not gratuitous, and make the message clear that. What we're seeing is oh, yeah. terrible. So after that, yeah, he's, he's pouring petrol all over him. Uh, and That's then got a sting as well. That fucking. I hell. know because he's got an open wound, uh, and then he's about to burn him. And Orange, basically, who's been lying bleeding out on the floor this whole time, yeah. is conscious and awake enough to just basically shoot Blonde. Mm. And we are getting into the final act of the film now because that leads us right towards the denouement. But first off, we've got um, Orange's backstory. Now it starts with Orange in a um, diner with is that his boss, his handler? Doesn't come off as a police chief, does he? No, I think it's like another undercover cop or inform of some dis- some guy. It's kind of, uh, somebody with deep cover experience. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Into uh, auditioning for that role and not getting it, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, okay. I can see and that. Quentin remembered him. And the rest is history. I, I referred to that in an earlier film. He didn't get that role, but he kind of percolated around Quentin's head afterwards. That that reminds me as well, because also Robert Foster auditioned for a role in this film as well. He, he, he auditioned for Joe. It would have been a very different uh, film. Yeah. But yeah, he could have been basically Joe Cabot. And uh, yeah, and he said the same things like, hey, uh, you're not right for the part, but I'll, I'll remember, remember you. you. Yeah. And he did. So in the next two films, we get those uh, those people. Yeah. Uh, and they arguably had, well, they definitely had bigger careers with Quentin Tarantino than 
the people who ended up getting the roles. Lawrence Tierney was actually fired in the first week. They had, they had to do a little bit of remedial work to get him back on board. He ended up in a punch-up with Quentin Tarantino. Really? Because, his, yeah, his behaviour on set was so bad. There's stories about him on the set of Seinfeld as well, because he, he had a guesting role. as I think he may have been Elaine's dad in Seinfeld, but he had a guesting role in that. The guy had a drink problem and a history of violence as well, so he would be trouble. So whilst I know uh, Quentin Tarantino is no agent, uh, no angel uh, uh, himself, when you say those two had a punch-up, I know instinctively uh, Lawrence Tini calls that. Well, well, he's not exactly a, a fighter, is he, Tarantino, for any of his criticisms, is he? No, but I, also, I always get the impression he'll have a go, though. I always get the impression that, like, push comes to shove, why not? I'll have a try. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, if he did spit, spit a song, didn't he, so... Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are other stories as we go along in, through his career. That's what I mean by we'll see. But, um, yeah, um, so Orange's backstory is purely about preparing him to kind of fit in with police. We're sorry, with criminals as a policeman. And it's about trying to teach him that you've got to have stories in your armory about your career in crime. But those stories have to be layer upon layer of, of detail that you know instinctively and without pause so that there are, there's just no gaps in your story. And so he's basically being taught an anecdote about walking into a men's room with drugs on him. That's an anecdote, isn't it? Yeah. But I guess it's like I guess it's how you tell the story. <laughs> you build you build up situation. Well, that's, enti- that's exactly it, Chris. That's what they're trying to teach him. Yeah, that it's it's what it's how you tell it. Anyone it's... could go in and make up some stuff where all the details sound right. Yeah, but it's building up all the kind of it's like all the backstory and like and 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 all sorts. So yeah, um, I actually really like the like this part because it it just builds up this kind of. It's almost like a, a, a method, like an actor explain acting, but while well, not being an actor. Well, he is. Yeah, he is really. He's totally explaining Tarantino's understanding of acting. Um, and what I also love is the film doesn't really let up on the tension, and when and when you when it drops you back in to the warehouse, the tension is is already there waiting for us. It doesn't almost it almost doesn't need to build again. But these sections just take us out of it for a few minutes mm. and gives us necessary backstory. I mean, we have had oh they got their names and everything else as well. But um, Orange is is basically we think a single police officer working undercover. Um, it's acknowledged he's very very brave to do this. It's also acknowledged he hasn't done a lot of this before. Um, and just little little sort of character beats like his apartment's got silver surfer posters up and things like that. Mm. And he makes reference of Fantastic Four as well, and he does. Uh, he also makes a Pam Grier reference at one stage as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's talk about like, so, well, it wasn't Pam Grier, but who was it? I don't know. I just don't know it wasn't well, Pam Grier. Yeah, it was like yeah, I've never like, even heard of the program. Sadly, I can't remember what this program was. I think it's she did the film version and they were talking about the TV version, so it's analogous to like Irene Cara in Fame or something. But um, there's there's a there's a there's a niche. There's a trivia there. for you. There's an up to date reference for all our listeners. Mm. I was referring to 1980s Fame. Um, yeah, um, that's really about it, isn't it? It takes us right the way through to him telling the story, um, and then you see you see 
yeah, you see them give get their names. Yeah. Um, Which I think is neither here nor there, other than it's a, a bit a bit of character as to mm-hmm. like why and how and how did they get their names. Well, the whole point is nothing identifiable. The suits is is entirely uh, the point that I mean, I've heard him interviewed, and he said you you'll get robberies where they're all wearing like raiders jackets. And it just throws people off because when some when the police say what do they look like I don't know it's a bunch of raiders jackets, so he put them in suits because he thought that was cool. But the idea of them in a, a matching clothing um, did have kind of a sort of verisimilitude to it. Yeah, and uh, their names it was purely like we give you the name because otherwise you'll all fight over being Mister Black. Which is kind of a fair point, actually. I like the but, idea of there can't be a Mister Purple because there's already a purple on another job. But but I do wonder why is why is there Mister Red? Why 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 does it go straight to like like pink brown? There's Mister Red on another group on another you know. On yeah, another but it's, it's, it just seems like well, there isn't. <laughs> not necessarily. Yeah, I think not it's this, you know. Not not like yeah. It just like seems like oh, that seems a bit harsh, Mister Brown, Mister Pink, Mister. <laughs> You know, it's just it's just names. It could have been anything. It could have been characters from fucking Sesame Street. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that would have got confusing. It's easy to remember colors as well. Yeah. Because I, I I have never since first viewing of this film had any problems remembering which one's which. Yeah. I saw it. What you know? I go and see films I like, and sometimes I can't remember character names. I I could tell you from the first viewing what all their colors were. Yeah. It's something that you know is quite iconic as well. Yeah, it sticks. It sticks really well. If you, you know, Mr. Pink, don't tip. You immediately know they're talking about Steve Buscemi's character. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, another little sort of thing as well. Um, you also get to even the even the bit when he's Tim Roth is telling the story. You kind of see the expressions on um, on uh, Harvey Tysell's face that he's kind of warming to him a little bit. You kind of oh, I like this guy. You know. He, he, he builds like you know, and obviously they have that scene when they're like going through the the, the robbery in the car. You, you, you get like you, you know, it's you, you're seeing the bonding rather than having to be explained that these two are bonded. You know, it's just little. The other thing, of course, is they've got to skirt the fine line because if Mister White went up to him and said, "Actually, I'm called Larry Smith, and I've got a wife, and I've actually got two kids, and I'm from Oakland, and so on." that would break the rules so far that you wonder if you could trust him. Mm. And the same would be true the other way. Tim Roth has got to, or Orange, has got to skirt this fine line of dropping in personal details so that he's trusted, but not dropping in so much that he's distrusted. And that's really masterfully written. Mm. Especially because he's kind of like a mole within a mole. Yeah, exactly that. I I think it's outstanding. He's very Uh, deep undercover. Yeah. Um, and then that's more or less the end of the film because we come out of that to back into the warehouse where that pole of like tension just drops immediately again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's lying there damaged, but um, he explains to the cop. Yeah, he explains to the cop that like, look, the we're just waiting for. We're a block away. The police yeah. are a block away. They're, they're, wait, they're waiting for the the boss to show up, and then they'll see. So basically, he's like, look, all I have to do is. Hold them off with a as crappy explanation as possible. It doesn't matter. Hold them off enough so the boss gets here, and then once that happens, we'll be good. Um, the police will come in. But of the, course, 
the worst person he could have shot is orange is blonde. Yeah. Because that's the one Joe trusts <laughs> and <laughs> nice guy Eddie trusts. So because he's been nuts in the in the wholesalers, mm. they assume that they can pin it on him and go, "Well, he's nuts." Yeah, and of course they've gone. Oh, he he started shooting the place up or whatever, and they just go, "Well, he just did four years for us." Fuck off. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, and you think, "Shit, it doesn't, does it?" <laughs> it it doesn't, and there's no argument to it. And he goes, "Well, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that." Mm. Or my mother's eternal soul, he says. Yeah. And it's like, do you know what? I think I know this character well enough to know his mother must already be dead or something like that. And there's, He's sworn on something that's of no consequence. He must have. But um, he... Uh, so immediately we get to the standoff, which is taken from that Asian film. I forget the name of it. Which film did he copy for that bit? Oh, uh, Ring of Fire, probably. Right, okay. Ring of Fire... Um, um... It's not Ring of Fire. It's, is it City on Fire? City on Fire, yes. City on Fire, that's it. That's it. I have seen that, but long, long time ago. So we end up with... Joe goes to point the gun at Orange because he says he's the one I'm not sure about and I shouldn't have taken him onto the job. It's my fault. White then, in a misplaced sort of um, paternal kind of protection of Orange and the bonding they've had, points one at Joe... And then Eddie, instinctively trying to protect his father, and it is his dad, because he says, stop pointing the gun at my dad, mm-hmm. uh, points the gun at White. So you've now got a standoff. The, the only one that doesn't have a gun on him, actually, theoretically, and I say theoretically because something goes wrong in the execution, is Eddie. Yes. Basically, everything, everything gets uh, hyped up. Uh, who shoots first? Is it, it must be the... Um, what's his name? Do you know what actually happened? Joe. One of um, Car- uh, no Car- Harvey Keitel's squib went off. That's what happened. It was just it was an error. It wasn't meant to happen. But because you've got Pink under the stairs, hidden in what could be in sight of it, I've always assumed it was him till I read it was a mistake. I always thought Pink shot Joe, uh, shot Eddie from his sort of hidden vantage point. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter. The point is they're all basically shot at the same time. Uh, Joe and Eddie are killed outright, and then you've just got um, you've just got White still alive, but he's injured. Yeah, and Pink just goes fuck, and then runs out. Think... Takes the diamonds and fucks off. Yeah, uh, yeah. As- assuming he gets caught by the police outside, though. Assuming or... the police are right outside because they're straight onto Mister White, mm. aren't they? Yeah, uh, and then uh, yeah, you kind of. Um, Orange for some reason then confesses even though what's the fucking point now <laughs> but he does just out of maybe out of conscience um, it's conscience it's yeah. it is and yeah the, the, he's kind of like oh no not again and he he, he contemplates whether to shoot him or or not and the police come in and and of course he's got a, he's got a gun at one of their own head as well yeah. so it just becomes yeah, they take him out effectively as we cut to black. Does he shoot him though as well? Because I, I I read it in the terms of like, well, let's fuck it, let's die together. I don't know. Is the honest answer? I think he's White is definitely shot because yeah. you see it sort of lurch backwards. But who knows? I don't suppose it matters at this stage because by now Orange was already dying and he's been shot a second time. Mm. So I, I'm at least so it, I I don't think his chances are good as it is. 
And then I love the song they go to at the end because it's just like a lime in the cooking and a lime. Yeah, but it's got <laughs> references to like a, have a belly ache and things like that. And of course, <laughs> she's been shot in the gut. Or is it because she's pregnant? No, it's because Who? Orange is pregnant. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's because the, the woman. I don't know. I I I majorly misread that song. I always thought it was because she was pregnant, but maybe not. It's, it's no, it's it's the relevance of the song of the album to this film and this part of the film. Exactly. It's co- yeah, coconut. So I think, so I think that's what, you know, it's because it's about belly aching because he's been shot on the belly. Then clearly, that's on the you know on a par with on a par with my comment about the titles being orange and orange is the rap. Well, no, they're not at all because they just <laughs> cho- they just chose a color that looked kind of cool at the start. Of the it looks kind of seventies. That was actually more gold than orange anyway. At this point of the film, he has to pick a film to close it that's 70s. Exactly, he so picks, he goes for that one. And he picks Coconut by Harry Nielsen because it's just got a funny line about... Because like, it's very 70s. ...having Ooh. a bellyache. Yeah. Great film, this. Yeah. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose we should have done, like, this out of sequence. Should have done, like, uh, fun facts, sequence, talk about the film sequentially, uh yeah. Final thoughts. thoughts, first thoughts. I should, I should talk a load sequence. of shit and then later on you get like a scene that shows you how I learned to talk shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, there's, yeah, but like, there's, uh, you getting, um, getting taught by your mentor of how you were uh, able to talk. Yeah. It would be Pi May. <laughs> Pi May would be t- and, teaching and, me. Teaching me dick jokes in the mountains. And and at some point they'll be like, cut to a, a Skype conversation with me and Becca talking about bonds, and then you know, be all kinds of stuff. So, so uh, Dave, when when you when we go live in a minute and you tell the story about shitting yourself on the M6, <laughs> you've got to make it naturalistic <laughs> as hell, baby. <laughs> make him believe that they were there. Uh, <sighs> So, final thoughts. If if we've not expressed our final thoughts already, really. I think we kind of have, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, it's... um Out, out of... Because it's his first film as well, I think it's the title of his, of, his, of his films. There's not a lot yeah. of meat on it, but then there doesn't need to be any meat on it. It's it's it's, no. it's basically all kind of engrossment in the characters and, and, and as Dave says, about loyalty and trust. Um... And it and it just works really really well. Um, the the violence is done just right. Um, and the dialogue is great. The the dialogue just tells the story rather than t- the action. Uh, there are parts in it that you can kind of tell that it's a very independent film, but for the most part, it's it's really great. Um, the yeah, so yeah, generally really really good first film. And to be honest, I think it stands test of time. As a classic in terms of setting a, a new genre, a film. I don't. I, I think I've said everything I can possibly say through this film now. That um, I've really, I, I, for the first time ever, I'm not going to add any final thoughts. I've said everything, Becca. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I've said everything too. Yeah, it's just a. a it just set. It's just like set the uh, occult marking cut in pop culture. That's pretty much what Reservoir Dogs did. Reservoir Dogs, yeah. It it is to the film industry what Nirvana was to music, yes. what Nevermind was. Um, I would argue far more influential actually, because I think I think Nevermind is is uh, is um, importance is kind of overstated. But uh, 
Uh, well, 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 to be fair, well, to be fair you know, um, over time. Ta- Tarantino didn't blow his head off with a shotgun, so and, and no, it, to be um, fair, but yeah, and and, and not only that, like I, I kind of quite like the Foo Fighters. <laughs> well, I, I I love both. I love Nirvana <laughs> and Foo Fighters equally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I have. What, what, what are you gonna full... do? Oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> and I have a hundred and four friends. <laughs> are we all here? We're all here. Okay. I I heard something. I thought someone fell off their chair. So. No, I knocked my microphone over. I was so excited about. Yeah. You know, it was. <laughs> all right, having me having a hundred and four friends. Yeah. <laughs> that is damn exciting. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs people. So, uh, any fun facts, Becca? Um, couple really. Um, only a couple. Oh, come on. Yeah, I've got five. They might be. That's, that's the standard number then. Cool. In two thousand nine interview, Tarantino said that he's proud of his film regularly appearing in top ten heist movies when he didn't actually see the heist. So that's pretty cool. Um. Fun fact number two, obviously, on, was that, budget that, earlier and how that, low it was. Hang on, sorry, Becca, sorry to stop you, but is that actually a list? Heist movies where you don't actually see the heist? No, like, for example... Um, oh, okay, sorry. No, you know, no. Film, film, magazines, film magazines regularly do, like, top ten heist, heist movies list. or top ten lists. Okay. Um, it's effectively a heist movie where you don't see the heist. Okay. Yeah. She's saying it got into the top ten heist film list without even having the heist in it. Yeah. Not yeah. that there's a list in there that's called <laughs> Best Heist Movies Best with the Heist. That's what I thought I had to clarify. Best because porn, best porn that... with no nudity. <laughs> Fun fact number two, um, the budget didn't cater for traffic control um, or police assistance. So the scene where Mr Pink I was going to say pulls a woman out of the car, um, removes a woman from her car um, had to be done on a red light and he could only, he could only drive away on a green light. Um, fun fact number three, Tarantino tends to avoid product placement um, and he only uses brands that are no longer around, like for example when um, Mr White offers Mr Pink a just a filled cigarette. Um, fun fact he, does number four, invent his, um, he does invent his own brands as we go along because we see Apple does. cigarettes. We see Apple cigarettes throughout. Red Apple. Uh, yeah, he makes up his own, his own brands or uses brands that haven't been around like all 1950s or 60s brands that are no longer with us. I think well, we, I did see. Oh, this is probably back in the very early 2000s. There was like an online store um, selling merch like with these fake brands on it, um, which is quite interesting. I don't think it's around anymore. But yeah, fun fact number four: Empire Magazine voted it the best ever independent film I don't know if that has changed at all um, and for fact number five Ed the Sally Mankin agent lobbied for her not to make this film claiming it was so violent and you know nobody knew Tarantino where he came from um, and obviously she went on to edit his first six films yes I alluded to a change in the pacing of uh, Tarantino films and it's the loss of Sally Mankey that caused, causes yeah. that we'll get to it uh, also uh, Tarantino um, was originally going to play Mr Pink but, uh, we'll see now. Yeah, yeah. Which which, which kind of makes sense because Mr. Pink is very Tarantino esque. Totally, it, it, totally. It, it, I could it, see it. What 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 I did what think about is why hasn't Steve Buscemi been on more Tarantino stuff? Yeah, he's um, yeah. He's got a cameo next week, and that's it. Yeah, I just think it just seems such a, a match. You know, it's like well, you know, you've put uh, Steve Buscemi in. A Tarantino film, it just seems like an odd thing. Buscemi is the bride. 
<laughs> well, he's got the looks. Yeah. Wiggle your big toe. Has he got the touch? And apparently, Michael Madsen had uh, had difficulty doing his um, that infamous torture scene because he doesn't like violence that much. Actually, oh, really? <laughs> I read, there was a point I read because uh, there's this little bit of improvisation in this script, not a huge oh. amount oh, in the script. Sorry, on the set there was a little bit of improvisation, and the line about I, I don't even remember if it's it's in the final film in this form, but Marvin says about having a kid at home. Says have he's mm. an eighteen okay. Uh, Michael Madsen had a very young child at the time, and he had to stop. He ju- ah. he just momentarily thought about it too literally, and and couldn't continue the scene. Which, yeah. which apparently is actually in the film as well. Part of that is in the film. What, the pause and all that? Yeah. I look out, I meant to look out for it today because I was actually reading stuff earlier and then watched the film and didn't give that bit of thought. But it, it could be down... To, it, could, it could have easily been played off because he does pause a lot in terms of sort of like, yeah, I'm just going to just take my time with this, which, uh, which kind of adds to it, I guess. That's it, isn't it? I think that's a wrap. Folks, yeah, I think that we've said everything we can say on it. I, I, I think kind of that will probably be our tightest episode of the series, which is kind of appropriate given the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I was concerned because of the nature when we came to talking about film sequentially in terms of how the film kind of goes back on itself all the time. It's like, okay, this. But it, be... it doesn't actually, though. I mean, it does. Yeah. But that hour in the warehouse is actually linear. So if you just think of it as an hour of, with uh, little cutaway stories yeah. to augment how they got there, I don't actually think of it as, as anywhere near as disjointed as Pulp Fiction is. It's not, and then Pulp Fiction is three separate stories, isn't it, really? But even then, they've got overlapping timelines and mm. stuff like that, so Pulp Fiction could be a difficult film to piece together. Yeah. I don't, I don't find it that difficult, but I know a lot of people do. Once we get out of it, out, out, well... As if, as if we're going to sort of like, yeah, let's yeah. get out of Pulp Fiction. Once we get that out of the way, it's pretty more, it does, it's it more does, linear, it isn't get, it? It does get um, much more straightforward, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kill Bill 1's a little, the Kill Bill films are slightly out of sequence as well, but they signpost where they are. Mm. And that's more about pacing of a film. Yeah. That's more about, um, it's acknowledging that in real life, things aren't necessarily going to happen in the most cinematic sequence. So, so, the events happen in like a normal sort of life order, and then he rearranges them into a more cinematic audience uh, order, and then points it out to us. Kind of cool, but we'll talk about it when we get there. So, uh, social media, guys. Yeah, okay. You can find me at the Pasty Kid nineteen seventy six on Twitter. You can find me at Cinematronics on Twitter. You can find this website at cinematronics.co.uk where you can find this podcast and the other podcast, which I rarely update. <laughs> <laughs> The podcast within that date podcast. Yes, the to be continued podcast that you might find occasionally, but yeah, you can find any stuff at that website. Sorry, I wasn't really listening, but I caught the end of that. So, can I just instinctively do my normal reflex action of coming soon? Summer review 2018. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were talking about doing maybe like an end of year review, but we'll see if we can manage to do that. But yeah, yeah, we haven't said which year. <laughs> So, David, what do you think of 1954? I thought it was disappointing because (laughs) Marty McFly hadn't invented rock and roll yet. (laughs) Becca? 1954. 
Great Scott. What? <laughs> <laughs> or rather, 1983, Selena Scott. Um, yes, you can follow us on Twitter at Expect to Talk. Also, um, we're also on iTunes and Stitcher. If you're on iTunes, type in Do You Expect Us to Talk? And you can also give us a glowing five star review as it'll help us rank higher and attract more listeners. Um, you can also search for us on the YouTube if you search in Do You Expect Us to Talk and find us there. And we also expect us to talk on Facebook. And if you and want on, to, you can email us. Grindr. Under no, sadly, we're, sadly, we're not on Grinder, and we're not on Tinder either. Because right, we are all spoken for. Thank you very much. Um, oh, by, our, by our fans <laughs> and our listeners. I was going to say, nice backpedal. <laughs> <laughs> Married to the podcast. <laughs> Although Chris is currently available. I tell you what, uh, my heart. Uh, am I? I tell you what, right, my heart. <laughs> are you? My throat when she said that. <laughs> So, uh, where, where's I think, that? Lead? I figure I, I figure either of you are always trying to like pair us off. So I'm like, oh, Chris is available. So. Who who am I trying to pair off? No, it's just uh, the last couple of podcasts are always like, oh, trying to pair us off. But it's like, no. I, I you've lost me, but all right. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's it's, it's it, never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Becky, you're saying you're not single anymore? That's none of your business. Okay, um, that's a yes. <laughs> Hang on a minute, what do you mean it's none of your business? Didn't you, if you knew that, she must have told you. In which case, it was your business. Why has it suddenly not become your I business? I did tell you a couple what of podcasts ago. Listen. What, you want I me to go to back your, and, Why would news? I go back and listen to podcasts when I could just ask you now? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. I told you before. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, so that's a yes, anyway. Um, Look what this idiot did. In America. <laughs> no. Oh, so, well, we're doing Alan Partridge references. That's perfect, actually. <laughs> well, no, it's just trying to keep, you know, it's like no person public kind of separate, really, isn't it? So. <laughs> yeah, but you know I don't do that. <laughs> well, you don't. Right. I do. Yeah, I know. But good luck with that. Chris is still laughing. So am I. Chris, are you alright? I'm okay, yeah. Good, right, okay. Okay, episode 102, Becca. In a week's time, we shall be... Do you expect us to talk or return with... Pulp Fiction Motherfuckers? (laughs) (laughs) Pulp Fiction Motherfucker!